This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me, quite serendipitously, is the managing editor of Screen Space. You've probably heard him over like almost every commercial and non-commercial radio station over the years. Like um, uh, we've, we've both had the same co-host in uh, 2UE's Dale Sinden at different times of our lives. He's the program director for the Sci-Fi Film Festival, which also has a really rad program around Sydney, if you know it. Um, he's a film reviewer for ABC FM, which you can listen to on the Central Coast. His name is Simon Foster. We see each other much a lot of times and it's so funny it's like there's that guy who also had the same co-host as me it's almost like we're cheating on or where the couple had the same partner and they were coming together so this is a really um for you guys listening it's a really important this is actually an important one on my list of folks that i would have loved to speak to and co-host on one eight minute because you know i was sort of um probably mentored by like, you know, Simon's first partner, Dale Sinden. So this is huge for me uh, from a personal level. So Simon, thank you so much for being part of the show. And we're at the 68th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus on this insane project. So Simon Foster, welcome to One Heat Minute. Mate, I'm thrilled to be here. I didn't know who you were until five minutes ago, so I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, we've been passing sort of ships in the ether for quite some time now, um, yes. and it is a thrill to be part of this extraordinary project. Um, I'm working my way through every one of the minutes uh, in preparation for this show, and I've heard some <laughs> extraordinary some podcasting, mate. So congratulations on what you're doing and on the minute you gave me, which I'm very excited to talk about. Yeah, look, it's um, there is no dead air in this movie. I actually was having a beer with a couple of friends, you know, just about to see the most, as we're recording this, Mission Impossible's out. And I had a friend was asking, you know, you have, and I'm sure you have it, Simon, too, and I have it myself. You look at the running time of a movie and you're like, uh, is, this, is this worth my time? And especially if you haven't seen it, depends on the mood. Everyone does it, right? Everyone does it. And I had a friend and I said, oh, let's go grab a couple of beers and we'll go and see a couple of mates. And said, let's go see Fallout. And they're like, uh, the running time. And I said, look, mm. you know, especially with one heat minute, they know I'm doing this podcast. And I said, look, all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's masterpiece. I, I barely take a breath. I'm just so transfixed. I go, and there's 90 minute comedies they could shave at least 40 minutes off. Oh, of. that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And what what you've done with this podcast is that you've focused in on um, the skill that a director of Mann's status brings to every frame of a film, and I think that's important. There's not a lot of directors working in the business today who have the craftsmanship, have the storytelling now, have the um, the prowess with actors that, that man does. Yeah. Um, and I'm drilling down on every one of these minutes. We're celebrating not just Michael Mann, but also this technique, this craft, this, you know, some would say dying 
skill of, of old school directors to, to bring that sort of depth to a movie like Heat. A, a great movie, still a genre movie, but in the hands of someone like Man, and you know, it's an extraordinary piece of work. Yeah, and and I I agree with you. It's like one thing, if anything, at the end of this project, you know, we talk ad nauseum about Man, but you know, he's he's getting these actors at the peak of their careers, and he's getting cinematographers, and he's got sound designers, and even just location scouts that we've poured over in the series. So you know, we've got a funny. We've got a funny little bridging minute that Simon and I are going to talk about, which I like. I like the bridging minutes because it t- it's a tone shift in the middle of a minute. We've got what I like to call fantasy land. We are in fantasy land at the beginning <laughs> of this minute with Neil McCauley played by the never more handsome than right now Robert De Niro um, and Edie, Amy Brenneman's character, sitting on a balcony in fantasy land talking about you know, let's cut the bullshit. You know, they're old enough in their life, particularly Neil. I think he's capitalizing on Edie's naivete there a little bit in this scene. And we'll, we'll watch together the minute and we'll listen, you guys can listen along. But, you know, there's a moment here. He's, he's, he doesn't want any of the bullshit. He's seen his crew looking happy. And I think mm-hmm. he's found someone. He's clutching onto her. And then we get, we, we transition into a beautiful moment, a little quiet moment in an Oscar winner's second film. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we catch the end of, of, of this minute with, with Natalie Portman, which I think is extraordinary. The the the, the quiet moment when I first watched this this minute, um, I've written down every line of dialogue from this minute. There's only Correct. about forty words, and uh, what I've zeroed in on was, as you say, De Niro at his most handsome, but also at a period in his career in that early nineties when he was exploring the bad guys, but exploring them in different shades and in a really nuanced way. So, you know, leading into this, into heat, he had just done Frankenstein. He'd just done casino. He was playing bad guys, but bad guys with, you know, real depth and, and different sort of grays to their character. You, you bring up an awesome point, Simon, which is I'm going to, I'm gonna, guys, while we're talking, I'm going to slightly do a bit of vamping here because this is one thing I've wanted to talk about a bit, and I'm going to jump on it before we even talk about the minute, is just the run-up, like the run-up for De Niro and the run-up for Pacino to this movie. So I think it's super important when you like look back at their careers, you're like, where whereabouts in their career did that land them? And mm. um, I, I heard someone t- that turn a phrase of a run-up, like using more like a sporting reference. You know, this is what was the run-up that got to them? So even if you just go from 87, Angel Heart, the untu- to your point, Angel Heart, The Devil, Untouchables, Al Capone, he does Midnight Run in 88, Mm. He's got Jack Knife, Where No Angels, Stanley and Iris, all sort of smaller films. He's got then he drops the bomb of Goodfellas, Awakenings, mm. his backdraft, you know, what a great bit role in Backdraft in ninety one, Kate Fear ninety two, a few other small ones. He stars in a Bronx Tale, which he, you know, directed, um, Frankenstein, and then, you know, rolls into Casino and then Heat. So his run up, they've got to be in like there's five or six of his top ten performances. Well, that's exactly right, and he he keeps working even in these most recent years. People say, "Oh, you know, De Niro's making Dirty Grandpa, and he's making all these sort of second tier films nowadays." He's also making Silver Linings Playbook and still getting Oscar nominated. He's also making these incredible films that actors of his age aren't walking up to anymore. When you compare him to where Pacino is nowadays, yeah. and 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 when you say the walk up to Heat that was Pacino's career, he just sort of crossed over into that. He'd gone from the quieter, gentler Pacino, the whispering Pacino of of the Godfather years, 
um, into the Dick Tracy, the scent of a woman, <laughs> yeah. the hoo-ha, and yeah. then into Heat when they're great ass and all that sort of stuff. We're getting out of our minute here. But um, he was just sort of becoming this bigger, larger-than-life character, whereas with De Niro, he was getting deeper and deeper into the sort of characters he'd played for for several years, but he was bringing something fresh and new to it. And that's why I think – I mean, I'll go out on a, a limb here and say Heat's one of De Niro's three, maybe four best performances. I agree. I, I, I mean, I know that that is the out on the limb conversation, but I think that when you when you've watched when you've watched a film as as obsessively as I have watched and and uh, say this movie, oh, I can't I can't think of another performance that he's done. But you're right, Pacino has a more inconsistent run up because he has mm. this weird gap. There's the like it's a movie called Revolution in 1985. He does Scarface yep. in '83, one of his obviously so iconic. And then he comes back with what is a ripper of a movie, but it was like his return, which is Sea of Love. Like he disappeared sure. for four years, didn't do a thing. And so yep. you know you look at De Niro's um, resume conversely, and they're like, he's there, like he's still he's still plying away at all these different roles. And then you actually see some of the better. Um, uh, I think some of the better Pacino performances a little after Heat, which is like Heat, Donnie Brasco, Devil's Advocate, The Insider, Any Given sure. Sunday, Insomnia, and so then then after Insomnia, it sort of takes a wild jump off the bridge. <laughs> so, so I'm concerned. but it's like, but it's really funny because you've got this like you know it's like De Niro is right into De Niro, and Pacino's been bouncing all over the map. Um, yep. But he comes to Heat, and it's like the focus of being able to be quiet and intense as well as some of those more, the big histrionics, the great ass. Um, again, guys, playing along at home, I love when – I'm, I'm going to go back and listen and find how many of our guests do the great ass impression on this podcast because you can't help it. I, I, look, I've done it too. I'm going to find myself – if someone's listening along and you can email us at mail at oneheatminute.com and tell me how many times someone's done that, I'm, I'm in. I, in fact, I might go back. I'm, t- I'm warning all of the guests who've been on this show. I'm coming back to you for your best great-ass impression. I'm going to cut it into one thing. It'll probably go for a minute and a half of all your best great-ass impressions. I'm going to write that down because that's definitely going to be happening. That's a good idea to do. That's a Wikipedia list waiting to happen, isn't it? <laughs> so, so, yeah, look, it's so it's really interesting. And just even, you know, I, I the other ones I like to think of, so I, I don't know about you, but it's like Dante Spinotti, who's the cinematographer of this movie, he did yep. this, and two years later, he did L.A. Confidential. And I would ask yeah. you, are there any two better-looking movies in the 90s? Like, there's like, there might be those two. There's the Deacons, obviously, but L.A. Confidential, even even beyond Heat, like that Curtis Hansen masterpiece, is exquisitely shot. It is so sublime. And both set in L.A., like, my God. Yeah, he captures L.A. in a way that... and and. and... Michael Mann returned to L.A. with Collateral and also sort of redefined the way L.A. was shot and and looked. So he's got a fascination with the visual um, stylings of of Los Angeles. And and you're right, that certainly comes through in in Heat. Um, It was fascinating to sort of read up before I did this, before I did the podcast. Um, there was some use of green screen in some of the scenes that yeah um, in, in, that, that the Iran shot in yeah in this in, scene, the, yeah. in, in the same location actually it's a little bit earlier in the film but it's exactly the same location because in the blocking here um, um, if you're so for you guys playing at home for the 68th minute 
It is the original theatrical cut Blu-ray. There are a few varying versions which do have some off timing. So if you if you don't have the same version, I'll just describe where we're up to. It's an hour and seven minutes on the dial here, but at the freeze frame, which you're which you'll see on the screen as just beginning this minute, if you're watching along and playing along at home. Um, you're capturing De Niro in the right of frame and behind him is, um, or sorry, sort of blurred in the front of frame is Edie, Amy Brenneman's lovely luscious locks. And, and in the back is the sort of the trees and the shrubbery of the valley that's next to her sort of stilts house in the LA Hills. And it's in this scene where they couldn't get the lighting right and they did use green screen. But here, because the lighting is coming from the house and they're lighting it out here, um, they're not needing to use it. But yeah, you're, you're spot on. You're spot on there. All right, guys. Let's. We went. We went on such a deviation. I'm having a look at. We this. did. We went right up. I got caught. We're going to watch our minute. We should have a look at the minute and then drill down on some look, of the this stuff. This is a guy who's on radio. He knows how to get back on track. All right. So, <laughs> Simon, thank you, guys. We're going to watch along um, this minute and we're going to sort of take it in, and then you guys can listen along, and then we're going to come back and chat about it. Yeah, that moment in the middle of that sequence between Amy and, and De Niro, um, Edie and, 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 and Neil, his head stoops down. He says, come with me. Then his head stoops down, stoops, and he, he becomes fixated on a point. And there's a moment of realisation in his character there where he realised that he's pitting his dreams um, with her and what he wants from this fantasy world against his work ethos. He's going to have to, as we know, maybe we don't know, I can't remember exactly where it comes in the film, but when he says you've got to be ready to leave behind everything you love in 30 seconds, that's what he's bringing. He's bringing her into his world, into that sort of time frame, and he's almost certain that he's going to hurt her at some point. And I, this is a heartbreaking scene for me. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah, and you're right. It's like 11... I was I was watching along and I was trying to take note of where exactly in the minute. So we're 11 seconds into the minute that we're watching. So one hour, seven minutes, 11 seconds. And he sort of... There's a moment where he can't look at her. And I think you're exactly mm. right. That's exactly right. So what's the matter, baby? And it's, the heartbreak for him is right now he's the, mo- he's the least guarded that he almost is in the whole film. There's some, in the whole film, yeah. Some de- de- delightful, unguarded moments... Uh, in front of Pacino, where, the, where his guard's down and he's relaxed, but it's not intimate. And this is like that deeply intimate. And as you said, it's heartbreaking because I agree. He's looking away because he knows. He's, he knows that if that if he walks out of that hotel, he's gone. Like, it's yeah. over. And so he's in this, like, this is where he's talking about. Uh, and I think we've maybe stumbled onto something that sort of echoes really strongly in that conversation scene with Pacino is 
But he's talking about not having enough time. In this moment, he's like, I literally have to get this done so quick. I have to get this done mm. so quick in order to to make sure that I can survive this. Like it, yeah. it, for, for this relationship to survive, for us to survive, there's no way, that, like there's, no, <laughs> there's nothing I can do um, except except push through. Exactly. And and we talk about how handsome he is and how young he is and, and the, the, the steely resolve he has of this character. But when in that scene there, when he's looking down and the way Spinotti shoots it, he, there is the tiniest, tiniest um, tension in his brow. It's not a fully furrowed brow. It's just between his eyes. He gets a little crease there. Yeah. And he, he's looking down. And when he looks up at her, there's the, the smallest movement. You can just see that he knows within his own life he's crossed a line that he probably thought he wanted and now he's into a zone that he may never have been before and it's just um it gives so much depth to his character and when and when those sort of tiny incremental movements do that um that's that's damn near perfect screen acting for me yeah i mean especially his awareness to even take a beat like so he's fixated on that point and it goes about six seconds along we're just playing it on mute while simon and i are talking and simon's sort of commentating it almost but it's like he's fixated on this point there's the fire of the brow and then she says what's the matter baby and he's just sort of take like he he almost can't look at her at the mm. beginning of that moment but he takes a beat his eyes move and it's like he gets to be distracted Oh, sorry. He gets to get refocused back from this moment of distraction, um, and then he sort of says nothing. You know, he's and his head, the, the head shake. Excuse me, the head shake says everything because the head shake says no. Like mm. no, I'm gonna, I'm shaking it. I'm literally shaking it off. I'm like, pushing no, through it. I'm pushing through it. I can't yep. get any more emotional. And I, I honestly think that that, as you said, screen acting to have the awareness and the calcul- calculation that De Niro has to like be on the brink of tears but holding it like on a knife's edge and then be able to shake it off and still maintain that intensity. It's it, – he's – like these guys are special, Simon. Like I, I, I just I just don't think that they make people who are as aware of the subtleties and the, the myriad of what tiny gestures like that can do to convey and sort of enrich performance because like – I don't think films allow a lot of actors to do that anymore. The the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the films that were being made, I mean, this is a, a Warner Brothers picture. This is a big studio film. Yeah. To take these sort of small beats, to take these sort of small moments in a bank robbery movie, in a, in a police <laughs> procedural movie, that doesn't really happen anymore. No. So um, this was a prime time for people like De Niro and Pacino to, to make their mark in these sort of movies, and I'm grateful that they were there. Um, this I also want to point out this scene for me um, – the 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 minute prior to this where she talks about she went skiing but she didn't really want to meet people she doesn't like meeting people yes and and I don't want to cross over into the next minute but you're allowed you're allowed you're allowed is that okay is that within the rules yeah we've broken all the rules right this is we are we are Neil McCauley in this moment we've got an ethos we've got a code but right now we're just going off the reservation okay we're just breaking all the rules. In the next minute, Natalie Portman, just as we cross over into the 68th minute, she says, I just wanted to be alone. So this sequence is about people who are um, not entirely comfortable about being alone but are resigned to the fact that parts of their life will be. And De Niro's facing up to that fact in his in this scene. He's trying to do something about that, but he's realising how tough it is to make that happen, especially being in his situation. So this whole, I mean, this my 60 seconds and sort of the, the 15 seconds either side of it, is this whole really sad sequence about how lonely 
these people are in the one of the biggest, most bustling cities in the world. <laughs> with you know, with LA as its backdrop, here are three people who are willing to either accept their loneliness, accept who they are, or do something about it, which is maybe even harder. And what's funny is that Natalie Portman is excited to be to see Vincent in this moment, and mm. Vincent is that guy too. Vincent, yeah. Vincent's in denial. Vincent's like, when when Neil right now, there's some great echoes and contrasts in these characters, and when Neil's on the run up here sort of whatever fantasy land we you know we want to call it but you know if there is that sincerity of that emotion that he this is what he wants Vincent's on the downhill and i think that's also part of that loneliness i think you spot on is like she sees Vincent and what what strikes me is that she sees kinship in Vincent too because she knows mm. that he's compa- he's he he's got that lone you know he's alone <laughs> He's yeah. a, he's alone. He's a, lo- a lonely guy as well in in, in much the same ways because he's kind of floating through his marriage. It's not the connection's not there, or at least it's not there for Justine. So this what, what I've not understood until this project is just how is the finesse of this entire like there's like even ten minutes of conversations um, and encounters between men and women. Um, that echoes through different other story threads that all sort of have shared experiences or have huge contrasts. And, 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 you know, this is just the sort of final one that in, that at the beginning of the conversation, it feels like it doesn't fit with the other conversations. Cause it doesn't have the, I don't know. It doesn't have the bite that some of those others have until this, sure. until this moment, until yeah. you see his guard down until you mm. see in the next sequence, um, Natalie Portman alone um, on yeah. the street, um, and which is beautifully sort of queued up by the music. Elliot Goldenthal's music in this, which the guitar twang goes from the end of this scene, then increases as Natalie comes in. It's um, I, I don't know a lot of Goldenthal's work, and he and he he went back to work with Michael Mann again, like a long time later with Public Enemies. They they didn't work together um, after time. this yeah. for a long time. But um, the music in in this minute, in my minute, and and into the next is is really beautiful. Yeah, uh, he's um he's got what's so striking about Goldenthal's stuff is the uh, um is sometimes it's really delicate like a drone he'll just sort of he'll just sort of sit on a drone and you won't even know it's there it's like a dog whistle yeah. um and it'll start to immerse you in it and you don't realize that it's there and then it's just all encompassing it's all you know you're like oh my god this music's here he's got a really he's got a really you know um. He did Interview with the Vampire, which has a great mm. score. Did yep. Alien 3 with uh, a, a drugstore, Cowboy, Pet Cemetery. So he did some horror movies and things like that. Cool. Did this? He had a busy year in 95. He jumped straight from Batman Forever with Val Kilmer, mind you, um, straight into Heat, um, A Time <laughs> to Kill. God, he's had some good ones. He's had some good he's ones. He's had some really good ones. He's had some good um, ones. In, he's had some good ones in there. But, yeah, like that, you're right. It's the And it's also tonally here having that. Um, melancholic guitar really goes to your point as well of this, you know, we're talking about lonely people that are trying to find a way, you know, finding the thematic similarity between the two scenes with that same, you know, lonely twang. I know in your minute with Manola Dargas, you touched on the role of, and I'm sure you've touched on in other minutes as well, the role of women in the film. Um, For me, Amy Brenneman's character is, the sort of the the, the most pure, the purest shining light is, is quite clearly sort of, the redemptive character in the film is offering what by that I mean offering redemption for for De Niro's character. Yes. Um, Ashley Judd as Charlene and, and Diane Venora as, as Justine. They're they're also saviors of their men, but they've got 
a really dark side and there are their own flawed characters, um, yes. which Amy doesn't have, or Edie does. I keep calling her Amy. Edie doesn't have. So um, I, she, I, I'm surprised she didn't go on to bigger starring roles in feature films. She was great on television. I loved her in NYPD Blue and, of course, judging Amy, the few episodes I saw. But the, um, her role in this just was a, a, a gift to her as an actress, and I thought she was terrific in the part. It's really funny that you say that because um, Amy Brenneman has got quite a good – she's quite a funny lady. And in the 20th anniversary where they, uh, they had a special heat uh, screening in L.A. and had all yeah. the actors and performers that Amy Brenneman was there, and someone asked her a question about her character, and she said, look at the time – my, when Michael asked me to do this role, firstly I said, "No way, it's too violent. I don't want anything to do with it." And then he, Michael Mann, retorted, "Like, oh, that's why you must do it because I need, I need exactly that energy. Yeah. I, I, I need exactly that to do it." And then the flip side was, um, which I really liked, was at a time because you know she was she's a, a, a wily person. She wasn't she was street smart. She was kind of like, "What happened to this girl?" So mm. we're, fr- we're freeze-framed on the 22nd, 22nd second of this minute. She's got this beautiful, warming, like absolutely, as I said, pure, loving face. And mm. she, at the time, said to Michael Mann, what's happened to her? Like, was she abused? Is that why, you know, daddy issues? Da, da, da. And he goes, no, she loves him. Mm. So in a really purely romantic way, it's like, oh, no, like this girl thinks she's found love. She feels like – and. To, to her credit, the sincerity of her performance is that she makes you feel, especially in this moment, like, oh, it could be real. Because the the whole thing is you never begrudge her. She is wonderful and you feel sad for her, for the ordeal almost that she has to go through. You end up, my, my wrestle is with Neil, like knowing that he's going to hurt her and being okay with, mm. but you know, that's, that ends up being the tension. It's like, God, Neil, she's so nice. You know, you know- it, it, it's interesting that my viewing experience of this film, I, I was, oh God, I'm old enough to have seen the Sydney media preview of it oh when it when it came God. out. So I saw that, it, I saw the Village Cinema City, um, I think on a Wednesday, well, it would have been a Wednesday, maybe a Monday night. Oh but, my um, God, that's so great. So I, and, then, and then I saw it again very quickly, not long after that, also at the cinema. But to me back then, and this speaks to who I was back then, it was a very macho film. It was all guns and bank robbers and cops and Pacino and De Niro and all this sort of stuff. And De Niro with his, you know, most steely masculine and, and Pacino bringing the big performance. And I didn't really clue in on the role the women played in, in the film. And just to digress a little bit, I recently went to the um, 70 millimeter screening of The Right Stuff, Philip Kaufman's astronaut yeah. movie at the Ritz. Yes. And it was another movie which... Um, was a, came a few years prior to, to Heat, of course, but was also a movie which I realise watching it now is as much about the women as it was about the astronauts. Um, and, and watching Returning to Heat for the first time in maybe 15 years to, to prepare <laughs> yeah. for this podcast, I realised how strong the female characters were and the role they played in the men's story as well as having obviously their own momentum and their own yeah. sort of forward momentum. So, um Look, and, and, you know, you're right. The great Manola Daga said, you know, it's a gangster, it is a gangster movie at the end of the day. It's a gangster movie. It's men, it's macho. But these women all have such phenomenal characters, you know, to, to, to entangle. I think, you know, you were just talking about Amy Brenneman. 
And the conversation always starts, like, how did Amy, Bre- Amy Brenneman not do more movies? And then you go, mm. how did Ashley Judd not win an Oscar? You know, how, how is yeah. Ashley, you know, someone as phenomenal as her? And then you go, oh, my God, Diane Venora, like, she's just great in everything that she's ever sure. done. And yeah. so, so many of the women in this movie, I just look at, the, I look at all of them, look at little bit players, like, um, uh, uh, I think it's Kim Staunton who plays Lillian, Dennis mm-hmm. Haysbert's partner. I'm just like, every one of these women are so vital. Even Rachel, the crime scene, uh, the crime scene, like sure. Pacino's work wife. Um, I really love, <laughs> I really love their tete a tete. I really love their energy. Um, I just think that there's so many, you know, uh, the relationships and this emotional center is what then propels us in my mind to, the, the, you know, what allows us the, the folly of going into all the guns blazing because it's all the emotional core and then it makes everything serious. You know, it builds up these lives and then it starts tearing them all down one by one. And that's what's yeah. so wonderful is that once that once that heist happens and they just tear apart LA, everything starts breaking apart. Everything starts falling apart at the seams. And that's the kind of, you know, the tragedy and also what makes it so engaging as we sort of head into, we roll into that last bit of the film. But we get... I think, I think sorry, I, I just want to say, I think... Um... When I, when I first saw it, my first impressions of it, I, I, and then in the wake of seeing Heat and the other Michael Mann films came out, I didn't often rate Heat as highly as some critics had rated and, and, and obviously as you rated. And I, there were periods where I put Thief or Manhunter or Collateral as, as quote-unquote better Michael Mann films. Yeah. Returning to it for this podcast, I can see the complexities of it that – aren't always addressed in some of his other films. So um, it's right up there with, with, you know, one of my favorite Michael Mann films for sure. Oh, that's good. I'm gra- it's, I've, I, there's a lot of, um, a lot of folk who've come back around to going, I didn't remember it being this good, which is like, which I, which I, which I like <laughs> because a lot of people, I don't know. It's, it depends on the time. Honestly, I'm much the same. I didn't see it. You know, this is showing my age. I saw it on VHS for the first time. I missed it, um, and I was and I and I was actually you know probably old enough to see it if I, a, a parent took me along, but I didn't see it there. I saw it on VHS the first time I saw it, and at the time I thought it was just cool. Like mm. I thought it was just yeah. this was a cool movie, and then it just had staying power. And I think it, what what's what grows on me. I absolutely watch it differently now, even though I've watched it so many times. I absolutely watch it differently now, being a dad i watch it being, yep. uh, being a husband i watch it differently um uh, you know um you know i think there's different characters that you you, you cotton on to and um and you're drawn to but no I, I i agree it's yeah we could a lot of folks talk you know michael mann now it seems like it's now really the fad to go the same michael mann is the huge you know unsung great filmmaker that a lot of people really look forward to his films and talk about all of his stuff and mm. some there are some psychopaths out there, Simon, that'll tell you that Black Hat's a good movie. Just, I mean, they, those people, I've tried and mention them regularly on the show and just say, guys, stop, okay? Stop. I still haven't done it. I understand. I'm waiting for what I understand to be a much better director's cut or director's version to come out or I to agree. come to these shores. I don't know if I've, it's, it's turned up here yet, but I'll watch it then. But no, I didn't see the. That's okay. On the wave, just on know. the wave of negative opinion, I didn't see the last one, <laughs> and, and that's fine. And look, I just think that yeah, he's a one. He's a wonderful filmmaker, I think. And there's a couple, you know, the, I look at this period of his career, Last of the Mohicans, Heat, and The Insider, and I just go, wow. Yeah, see, I backed. I backed Insider was probably my favorite Michael Mann film until I started rewatching Heat. Yeah. Um, and and you've made the point in other podcasts. Um, he superficially he he deals in these bold masculine sort of characters but he's a deeply romantic oh. 
filmmaker. This, like you, you've pointed out in past minutes, the um, last of the Mohicans. Obviously, you point out the origami scene in this one when he leaves it on the bedside table yeah. in, in heat, um, and uh, he finds just the most sweetest, charming moments in in the midst of some real muscle flexing, and that's um, and he does it without being showy. He does it without sort of drawing too much attention to it. He lets us discover it years down the track. Yeah, he's uh, he's one of those really great filmmakers, and they they feel like rarities these days. Which is when they're making a big studio movie, where they're like, the audience is smart enough for me to leave a small detail. Sure. And then when they watch sure. it again, they might go, oh, or if they catch it in that first viewing, they might go, God, that's a lovely detail. You know, that was a, it's a really smart <laughs> thing that um, happened. We're only thirty seconds into this minute. This is great. Um, you get Edie's beautiful reassure she's just absolutely stunningly beautiful as well it's just not yeah put, make too fine a point in it but she's um uh, amy brenner at the time so beautiful so warm that this reassuring smile it sort of perks up neil they share a kiss and bang it's a great it is a great shot just very plain very you know you, you know it's a very very closely staged shot of yep Warm by the, the the sun, like in in contrast to the, the the darkness of the night in the scene prior. Her whole face is warmed by the sunlight of L.A., which yes. offers hope. But deep down, she's lonely now. Like she's having a sad moment. So she's the only girl standing outside of a school in 1995 L.A. that's happy to see a policeman. <laughs> she's the only girl. <laughs> that's a great point, of course. <laughs> like that's some, sometimes I can just go back and I'm like, you know, this movie does a. I think a totally effortless job at creating a really great cultural diversity without even trying. Like just, yeah. this is what LA looks like. We have Michael T. Williamson. We have the amazing Wes Studi. We have mm. Pacino. We've got Kilmer. We've got, you know, um, Danny Trejo, the wonderful Danny Trejo, Dennis Haysbert. Young, this is young what, Danny. Yeah, I know. Yeah. In his first movie, his character, uh-huh. name, original Trejo. So, okay. you know, <laughs> You know, um, and they and you just come around. The car comes around. You know, nice little stop off in the LA suburbs. Vincent, Some subtle very... camera movement there as well, though. Like the camera tracks behind her to follow the car around. And it's it looks a very, like it's an a very, unstaged. It's a very sweet touch too, because Vincent's like hanging out the window, like in a very cute sort take, of dad to take her hand. Yeah, to take her hand. It's kind of cute. It's you know, as he's coming up there to sort of grab her you know in a, in a sort of affectionate way it's really nice and he puts the i think i i, I think you'll recall if you if you rewind you'll see the the red flash of the um the lights in his front window there he does a u-turn in front of another car to get to her. Yes. he's using his yes he's using his police guile to block the traffic <laughs> to u-turn and get to her so that, that's in itself shows commitment oh that's nice yeah it's like yeah. bosco flick the lights we're doing a, we're doing an illegal <laughs> u-turn here and, and we're just going outside my minute again, but when she gets in the car, she knows the, the other police officer. She says, hi, Mike. Yeah. Just, so she's, uh, she's familiar with, with um, Pacino's world as well, which is lovely. Yeah, and, and, and he, she's the first person that calls him Mike because it's like, yeah. I'm meeting Bosco, I'm meeting Bosco, I'm meeting Bosco. And everyone's calling him <laughs> Bosco this whole movie. And she's like, hi, Mike. And he goes, hi, Lauren. Like, really cute, you know, um, for a long time she, there. She grew on me in the film because when, when Natalie Portman's introduced at the start, she's having that little bit of a tantrum because her dad hasn't turned up and I'm thinking, is this going to be the, the bratty teen sort of archetype? But it isn't. And man doesn't let it go that way. He creates as strong a character in her as he does in, in all the adults. Yeah, I really, I think, um, I think people, because this is an, you know, 
is a more adult story. I think a lot of times when I hear people criticize about her, it's almost like she feels out of place in a very adult story. But I think Man Sets Her Up, as you said, there's a great context. You know, you see her mum at the beginning of the movie, Diamond Nora Justine. She's there and, you know, she's she's popping a couple of Xanax to just chill right out. And her daughter yeah. who's exhibiting all this stuff of anxiety. It's like, well, I wonder why she's got anxiety because, you know, she's probably got anxiety because she had a, her mum and dad have had a really bad divorce or she might have, you know, some kind of genetic proclivity toward anxiety because her mum's clearly popping a couple of Xanax just to walk through the day in LA. Sure. And so, sure. you know, I, I always, I always, you know, again, I feel really, and again, it's, you know, I know you're a dad of two, so it's like, it's, it's you, you have this really deep connection where you just like, you feel really protective. I feel really protective of her in this movie, much like Vincent does now when I watch her, I'm just like, Man, it sucks. It really sucks because she's yeah. already. Mum and dad have already had a divorce. Her dad's clearly a dropkick. He doesn't really pay much attention to her. Her mum's. Her mum wants a second chance at a marriage to be young and, and frivolous and not to have a child. And she's sort of yeah. left all to her own her own devices. Which and, comes back to sort of refocusing on on the characters in the film that I didn't give much credence to when I first saw the film twenty odd years ago. To yeah. to, to focus in on the emotions that Natalie Portman's going through, as you say, because I'm a dad, because you're a dad, you see this this depth in that that just comes to us through age and our own observations, our own maturing. Um, and that just shows how how precisely man got those emotions and those situations right. So testament to him. It's a real quiet rebellion too. I didn't want mum to pick me up. You know, I did yeah. and that's kind of it's so sweet. It's like She's a real, at the end of the day, she's a good kid. She's not doing something, you know, she's not, if she was a bratty teenager, she would have, she would have stolen that Coke from whatever convenience <laughs> store that she got it from or something, you know, you, you, there's, there's, there's all that potential, as you said, you know, we've, we've watched a million movies and so you, you start to recognize easy and lazy story tropes, you know, with different bratty teenagers, etc. but she's just very quiet you know before her huge bold reveal which we see later in the movie you know her big cry for help but it's like um, and just looking at that frame there that in and of itself it's such a nondescript part of la it's it it, to make it look that lovely in that light um with that widescreen that's benotti that doing some amazing work in a scene that could have just been a throwaway scene it's like it's like 120 locations in this movie Oh like, really? I there's like 120 that. locations. They didn't shoot in any studios anywhere, and so you know, for folks who might not be as uh, you know film obsessed as Simon and I, just listening, if you're a bit of a casual listener, like just just logistics. Like imagine, and I'll just put it in here. Imagine setting up a kid's birthday party for 120 days in a row at 120 <laughs> different parks. And having to invite a hundred, you know, the same guests or whatever. But that's what they're doing when they're setting these individual shots up. They're dragging a bunch of trailers. They're dragging a hell of a lot of camera equipment. They're dragging any stunt people that they've got there. And for the big mm. days, you know, the truck, you know, the the awesome armored car heist at the beginning of the film, or like, um, you know, or, or or the incredible centerpiece heist that we see. You know, they're going to these same outdoor locations. You know, for 20 days in a row just to get mm. the shots that they need to get and they set them up and the actors are there and they've got to wait for the correct light so they can light match it because we're shooting on film at the time so you can't do a lot of the easy color correction you do with digital photography these days. It's sure. just a logistical behemoth 
you know, mm. like to, to to do it. And it's that's why it's sort of a, one of those dying studio movies that we sort of mentioned earlier on the podcast. It's so incredible. So, yeah, even things like, you know, um, Vincent is outside in a Koreatown, outside in Koreatown when he's going to the nightclub. And then mm. he's, the interior is a, a nightclub that used to be underneath a Payless shoes in another part of LA <laughs> because, you know, so, so to even shoot that one scene, they're not go, they, they went to Koreatown for an external because they thought they liked the neon and liked the setup and liked the car park and liked the staging for the outdoor areas, but for the interiors, they're going to a completely different place. So you're thinking they're probably doing four or five setups of the camera and then rolling and multiple nights and late nights or whatever. So, yeah, it's, a, it's just a beast. I just like which it. Makes the, which makes the um... – his decision to go digital for collateral and shoot the city that he knows so well on film in a new format and create such a extraordinary sort of visual feast for that film. It shows what a, a how comfortable he is in that setting, but also how daring he can be to capture yeah. the, the city in as many different ways as possible. Yeah. Collateral feels like, you know, uh, um, one of the things I just deeply admire about Collateral, and it was it was a time that he didn't use Spinotti, and Spinotti came back and used uh, used digital photography again in Public Enemies later. Mm. Um, but it was just about the depth of field in Los Angeles at night. You just can't. That that's the reason they use green screen here, and even in the 4K transfer, I think Spinotti talked about how he he thought it was more beautiful in the 4K transfer than it was on the film because he was like some of the ways they've been able to just sort of subtly elevate light in um in um, the evening scenes and things like that, just the depth, mm. like the clarity of those scenes now when, with those beautiful transfers, um, you can do it. But, yeah, like it, it's so, you know, L.A. is so quintessential and recognizable and shot to death. You're right. To find just a random street corner that doesn't feel like it's been shot on before in this huge mm. thing, it, it is weird. It's it, it's odd. Beautiful. Oh, man. What a minute. What I'm exhausted. A- <laughs> You know, I was heading into heading into this minute. I'm thinking, I can't do. It. I can't talk a minute on heat. I can't talk a minute on this minute. And here we are. What nearly an hour into it? So. We are 40 minutes, 41 minutes. And I love that you're like, I'm oh, so tight. Well, look, Simon, I'm sorry to tell you, but you've got eight more minutes to go back to back <laughs> after this. Um, <laughs> Look, guys, um, I think that's the perfect way to end it. Look, as I said, this is really special, and I'm super glad um, that Simon could be part of the show. So, Simon, firstly, thank you um, so oh, much. Mate, I've, I've, like I said, I'm honoured to be part of it. This is going to go down as a, a landmark piece of podcasting, not my minute specifically, but what you're <laughs> doing. Um, so I'm thrilled to be part of it in any way. Oh, look, thank you so much, guys. Um, screen space, so which is um, screen-space.squarespace.com is where you can find Simon. You can find him there. And is it at screen space? Is it all one word or is there a hyphen in there on the Twitter sphere? Uh, no, it's, well, it's at Simon R. Foster one. I couldn't get the screen space uh-huh. name because I'm hopeless tech wise. So <laughs> at Simon R. Foster one, it'll always get to me and you'll always find it find it um over there but uh and also on facebook make sure you put the hyphen in there if you search without the hyphen you get some venetian blind company in melbourne so <laughs> yeah, look if you're interested in venetian blinds don't use a hyphen yeah. if you're interested in simon please use a hyphen um look it's been a huge treat um for me so so i thank you so much guys thank you so much for listening um this is a a, a labor of love but i'm i'm totally 
uh, thrilled that you guys could be a part of the show again and have a listen to Simon and I natter on. Um, we've got a stack of great episodes coming up, so I'm really looking forward to you guys um, having a listen. We're at the 68th episode, so just as a little bit of a teaser, the 69th episode, which is so full of innuendo, you may have to take your headphones out, has Garth Franklin, the wonderful editor of Dark Horizons, and Lawrence Barber, the uh, Australian uh, Film Critic Association winning award-winning critic um, who's also on ABC News on RN, um, joining me for the next minute. And there's a stack of other great minutes and great people coming along. And go back to oneheatminute.com to have a look at our incredible roster of folks um, and some great ones that are coming up. So thank you, Simon, so much again. Thanks, Garth Franklin, for our web design. Thank you, Mr. Paul Davies, as always, for our theme tune. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you on another One Heat Minute just around the corner.